chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And we're going to be reading verses 25 to 35 today. Would you stand with me, please? Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and God, we just... Um, we pray that we would understand more today as we look into your word, what it means to really follow you, to be a disciple of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we have a greater understanding, even more so, God, give us a greater obedience. Give us a greater love for you that, that we do not want to leave you one little bit, that we want to stay right behind you, following you, knowing that you're a good shepherd who will always lead us in the right path. God, we pray and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. It is interesting that Scripture tells us about believers. It tells us that to, to be saved or to be uh, born again, we must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is vitally important that all of us do that. That all of us come to a point in our life where we understand I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I've done wrong. I cannot make up for it for myself. I, I cannot defend it. There's nothing I can do. I am worthy of God's judgment upon me. And yet the gracious and loving God that we have, he has given us, he's paid the price for us. He has offered us the gift of salvation. And we receive that gift through belief, or in other words, through faith. In Jesus Christ, what he did, dying on the cross of Calvary for us. And yet when Jesus sat down his disciples as he was about to go out, he did not say, go therefore and make believers of all nations. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. You see, there is a difference between a believer and disciple. Those things can overlap, but they are not exactly the same. 
A disciple is a person who closely follows, learns from, walks in the ways of his master. That concept would have been very well understood in the ancient world because you had philosophers like Aristotle and he would have his disciples and you had religious leaders and they had their disciples. But today that term, is, it sounds a little out there, a little bit different. We're, we're used to saying, yes, we believe and, and believing definitely is a biblical concept. But Christ called us to go beyond simple belief to being disciples of his. That is, we are learners or we are followers. What does that look like, though? I mean, if, if we say, yes, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, I'm a fully devoted follower, how, how does that look in real life? How does that add up? It's what I want us to see when Jesus was talking to a, a group of folks, many of them were fine to be casually associated with him. But they truly did not want to submit. They truly did not want to follow him as disciples. And so he laid out a course there of, of what this really looked like. And I'm calling this message today, as we're getting ready for school, Math for Jesus, or if you want to say Math for Disciples, okay? Now, I know some of you say, I, I don't do math. You know, like, I don't do Windows, I don't do math. So, and, and all of us, you know, we don't... We don't do some of that stuff that we learned way back when. You know, I always wish that I would have understood that the Lord was calling me to ministry about two years earlier. Because I went halfway through an engineering degree and I had to go through calculus one and two and three and four and differential equations. Ask me what a differential equation is. I have no idea. That is all gone from my mind. I've forgotten every single bit of it. But I did all that before I understood that God was wanting me to go into ministry instead. And we may not use all the math we learned in school, but we, you know, we, we still count one egg or two. You know, we still have maybe a checkbook that somehow we might balance or at least look on our phone and see what the latest balance is. I mean, we, we all have some basic level of math that we do in life. And, and this is math for, for Jesus. This is math for a disciple. What does it look like? And so I want us to, I want us to look at five points. Since there are five, we'll be brief on each of us, each of them. But five things about following Jesus, being a disciple. Number one, love for Jesus must be greater than, you know, the symbol, love for Jesus must be greater than all. Love for Jesus must be greater than all. Jesus says some very uh, interesting things in his messages. Some of them are shocking because we get them, because we understand them and that they blow us away. Kind of like Mark Twain once said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. When we get it and we say, wow, that's, that's really something. But sometimes we misread because we think that Jesus was some monotone, that he just never, you know, cracked a joke or that he never told a, a funny story or, or that he never used symbolic language like we all do. But the Bible is full of symbolic language. For instance, the Old Testament tells us that our God is a rock. Now, we don't believe that God is literally a stone. We understand that symbolic language very simply, just like Chevy talks about being a rock, Chevy trucks or whatever. Okay, God is a rock means, hey, we can count on him. He's sturdy. He's stable. He's immovable. Well, here Jesus says something that at face value 
sounds rather shocking. He says, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sister, and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is something because we know that that Jesus is a God of, of love, right? Our God is a God of love. In fact, the Bible says God is love. So what in the world is Jesus saying here when he's basically, hate everybody, even yourself. Hate them all before you can come be my, what in the world does he mean? Well, that was a a symbolic way. The Hebrews, the Jews had a way of, of basically when they said hate this one versus that one, it wasn't literally hating them. It meant that your love for Jesus is so strong that in comparison Your love for everybody else would look like hate. And I love that he says, you know, your husband, your wife, your mama, your daddy. Oh, yeah, by the way, and even yourself. Because in all honesty, for most, if not all of us, we won't admit it, but that is our greatest love. Our own self-preservation. What we want. And Jesus said, you have to love me above all other things. He understood that we use the word love about a lot of things. I love my dog. I love Netflix. I love this church. Uh, You know, I love my church staff. I I love these shoes. They're comfortable. I don't have to tie any laces. I just slip right in. Okay, we use love in a lot of different ways. And Jesus says that your love for him, if you want to be a disciple of his, if you want to understand what being a follower of him is about, that that has to be greater than all else. Point number two Jesus makes about math for discipleship. You must choose to be lesser than. Let's look at verse 27. You and I must choose to be lesser than. It says, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now here's something interesting. When one of the things about math that's really confusing if you, if you haven't taken a certain type of math or you have forgotten about it. If you open up a calculus book, there's going to be all kinds of symbols. And you're like, Ooh, what is that little strange, squig, squiggly, scratchy, whatever? I mean, we won't have a clue. It's, it's something that's unfamiliar to us. The cross is a symbol that I want to say is unfamiliar to us. Not that we haven't seen it, but its meaning is unfamiliar to us. We see the cross and we say, oh, the beautiful, the wondrous cross. We put it on necklaces and earrings and t-shirts. And and for us, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, the cross is a symbol of beauty and rightfully so. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. When he was talking about a cross, he was talking about it in, in the first century meaning. The way that every single one of his hearers, both believers and non-believers, would understand when he said, you take up the cross, they understood that it meant death, that it meant suffering, that it meant losing all comfort, that it meant losing all dignity, that it meant losing all freedom. Because there in front of a watching world, stripped down to next to nothing or even nothing sometimes. You would stand before the world, not instantly dying, but slowly and cruelly dying as people would walk by and would mock and would jeer your name. 
And your memory would forever be etched as there was a criminal. There was an awful person who was so bad that he must suffer the indignity of the cross. And Jesus, in another wild statement, what what English professors might call hyperbole, he goes out there and he says, look, if you're going to follow me, you better take up your cross and you better get in line. Just like I died, you're going to learn to die to yourself. You're going to learn that you're going to die to your selfish desires. You're going to have to learn to die to all about looking good and impressing other people and putting on a facade. Yeah, that's going out the window too. Oh, your own personal comfort, making that number one. Yeah, that's gone. That's going to die. In other words, you have to choose to say, I'm going to set aside everything that I want, and I'm going to say, God, if you want something different, your way is more important. I am lesser than. I love what John the Baptist said one day. John the Baptist had this amazing ministry. He started on the scene a little bit before Jesus, and he started preaching, and he was a wild man. I mean, he was a spectacle, okay? He ate locusts, and he Um, that's not as strange as it seems. I was reading an article the other day about how uh, popular grasshopper pizza is getting to be in this country. So if you didn't know that, that's a thing. It's coming. And they said like 80% of the world eats insects. We just don't, or at least we don't know about them. You don't want to look up, if that grosses you out, don't look up the uh, statistics about how many insects we accidentally ingest every year because they're out there. So, but anyway... He ate locusts, and he dressed wild, and he he said all kind of wild things. And, man, everybody was like, have you heard this guy, John? He is nuts. (laughs) you got to go hear him. And so crowds were flocking to him. And, and, And the big dog religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were getting jealous because everybody was like, we've heard your stuff, but we ain't heard John yet. And this is some new stuff, and this is some good stuff. And they were out there following, and... And, and, and man, he was pointing, he was saying, look, there's a Lamb of God coming. There is someone coming, and I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. That's how much below him. Don't put it all on me. But he preached, and everybody's like, wow, John the Baptist. But his job was not to promote himself. His job was to promote the one who was coming. He was to promote the Messiah, to, to promote Jesus. And Jesus comes on the scene, and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so naturally, as was in God's plan, the disciples of John begin filtering over and become disciples of Jesus. But there's a few of disciples of John who are kind of not happy about this. They like this little ministry with John they got going on. They like his style. And they come to him and they say, John! John! we got to talk. You know that church down the street? That, that, that preacher named Jesus? Um, they're getting some of our people. And, 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 and every time we turn around, there's somebody else going over there. we we, we got to do something about this. Okay? I'm summarizing. I'm paraphrasing just a little bit there. But that's basically what they said. John, you're losing your disciples. They're going to this guy named Jesus. You know what, John? He could have said... Yeah, you know, he could have said bad things about them. But you know what he said? He said this. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. 
I tell you what, if you don't get anything out of this message, catch that phrase of John the Baptist. Write it down. He must increase and I must decrease. You see, John got it. He understood. It doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years. That is still your plan. That is still your goal in life. You still have to learn to decrease your own selfish ways and desires and let Jesus be increased. And so that more and more when people see you, yeah, they see your personality. uh, They see your, your eyes and your skin cone and your body and all that. But guess what? Really, when they look deeply, what they see is Jesus reflected through you and in your life. He must increase. I must decrease. So... The second thing that we need to understand about this math for Jesus to follow him is that we have to choose to be less than. The third thing is get out your calculator. Get out your calculator. That's the third point of math for Jesus. That is, you and I have some figuring to do. And now, like I said before, we've all got different ways of doing math. You know, there's math for carpenters and there's math for accountants. And, you know, there's a correlation between math and music. People don't all, people sometimes say, hey, the fine arts, do we really need them? Study after study. I'm putting in a plug, by the way. I'm going to go ahead and say it. But, hey, for our music folks, there's a connection there. Math affects so many different areas of our life and is affected. Jesus said, though, you got to do some figuring. I remember uh, years ago I was watching a, an episode of a, of a very high-class show I used to watch called The Beverly Hillbillies, okay? And this was, this was a really special show. And, and my favorite, probably the smartest one of the bunch, was Jethro. I mean, I just love good old Jethro. And one day Jethro was showing off to Granny about his math skills. And she was asking him about his, you know, addition and multiplication and division. And he said, I can even tell you my gazentas. And she said, What? Gazentas. He said, yeah, I've learned my Gazentas. Two Gazenta four, two times, two Gazenta eight. Well, you, you get the picture. I don't care whether you do advanced math or remedial math or you do Gazentas or whatever you do. But all of us, Jesus said, when you are thinking about, am I really going to follow Jesus? He said, you don't do this lightly. You don't just say, yep, I, I'm, I'm fully devoted follower of Jesus now. He said, you sit down and you count the costs. And and we all know that lesson. Jesus took some examples from his life that everybody would have known. He said, first of all, what about when you go to build a house? Do you just start to say, I'm going to build a house without checking with your banker, without checking with your bank account, without checking with your spouse. You just say, hey, I'm going to build a house. That doesn't work out too well. Jesus said the people that do that, they start building a house And guess what? Even back then, apparently, lumber wasn't free, and everything wasn't free. There was cost for everything in building a house. He said, you get a halfway built house. And he said, everybody comes by, and they mocks and laugh. Aren't you glad to know that sarcasm isn't new? Even 2,000 years ago, people were mocking and laughing and and cracking jokes. Look at the half-made-up house. He said, you don't want to do that. I've seen houses like that before, haven't you? It's always sad. Sometimes it's because... Somebody died in the middle of building a house, and they just never finished it. Or I've seen those cases where somebody really got halfway through and just ran out of money, and, 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 they, and they'll tell you, yeah, I'm building my house. Oh, okay. <laughs> I haven't seen anything new in five years, but all right. I mean, Jesus said, don't do that. 
Don't say, yeah, I'm going to be a follower. I'm going to go everywhere you want to go, Jesus. Unless you've really counted the cost. And he made another example. He said, what about a king who's going to war? And he knows how many soldiers he has. He knows how many soldiers. Guess what? There's some math involved in warfare. we got to figure out these numbers and these numbers. And if ours are less than theirs, how are we going to make up for that, that difference there? Jesus said, look, don't do it. And we understand that same thing today. When we go out and do something without counting the cost, it's trouble. Any of y'all ever said to yourself, you know what? I'm kind of bored. I'm not buying anything today. Uh, but I'm just going to go look at the car lot uh, just, just for fun, right? And, and, and I'm just going to go down there. And, and you have all the intention of the world, and you can substitute, you know, condo, bass boat, four-wheeler. You can put in whatever you want. Well, I'm just going to look at it. And you go down there, and you haven't really planned it out. You have, But they talk about easy financing and, and how they can make you a deal you can get into. And all of a sudden, you walk back, and, and you're the proud owner of a whole bunch of debt for a long, long, long time. And you haven't really counted the cost, and now you're trying to figure out, what do I got to cut to get this thing I'm stuck with? Jesus said, don't be that kind of person. If you're really going to say, I'm going to follow me, follow Jesus, get out a pen and a paper. Start listing some pros and cons. Start thinking about the things in your life that Jesus may want to change, things you may have to sacrifice. Jesus was never uh, what we would call a manipulative evangelist. He didn't say, everybody, you know, close your eyes, raise your hands. Oh, come forward if you've raised your hands. Oh, you've, you've joined my movement now. No, Jesus never tried to manipulate. He never tried to get the easy decision numbers. He actually told people, whoa, hold off now. Have you really thought about this? Have you really considered what it means to be following me? Fourth point about the math for discipleship is that the cost... Well, I'm going to say this two different ways. The first way is the cost is you. And that is one singular you. Now, I'm going to say it another way in a second, but I, I had doing this math sermon, I said, what do, I don't know a lot about math. Or I used to know a little, but I've forgotten it all. And, and so I texted Rebecca and I said, is there a symbol out there from a math teacher? What, what just basically says everything? And there's a fancy little you-looking symbol that means unlimited set. That means everything you got. Now, my simple version is 100%. Okay? So you can write the you or you can write 100% or you can write both if you want. But the cost of following Jesus is everything. Look at verse 33. He says, so likewise. That is, he says, just like these two stories I've just told. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So Jesus says, this is an all or nothing kind of offer. Okay? Every single bit, every single bit of who you are is what I want. So when you start making that list of things that I need to be willing to sacrifice, that I need to lay at Jesus' feet and say, this is who I am. That is everything you are and you will be. Your possessions, 
your abilities, your relationships, even your potential, your future, your past, your present. It all goes to God. Being a disciple is not coming to Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, let me make a deal with you. Years ago, I met a man who made a deal with God in World War II. You know, these deals we make. His plane was shot down. He broke his legs when they hit the water. His captors thought he would die, but he did not die. He lived and was put in a German concentration camp. And I remember him telling me years later, he said, you know, I made a deal with God just then. That if God would save me, then I'd serve him all the rest of my days. He did not serve God the rest of his days. He is in eternity now. And I will not speak to where he is, but I'll tell you this. He had to answer for that. But the real truth is, we don't make some custom deal with God. We don't come in like we're Walmart or Amazon and say, I don't care what you charge everybody else. We're so big and bad, we're going to tell you how much we're going to pay you. No, we don't go do that to God. We don't have leverage over him. We cannot manipulate him. God's price of discipleship, that cost of following Jesus, it is the same for everyone, and it is everything. It's 100%. Finally, and this is really the flip side, the reverse of this idea. Discipleship light, this is kind of an equation here. Discipleship light, like L-I-T-E, junior version, small version. Discipleship light equals worthless or zero. Listen at verse 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm going to confess, I did not do advanced research into why they use salt in dunghills. I'll let you go do that research yourself. But I know that he did say that salt, the main characteristic of salt is that it's salty. It has a taste. It has a flavor. It gives life to food. You see, a lot of us, we want discipleship light. It's like we pull up to Wendy's and we say, uh, I like a taco salad, a half order, please. Or we go to Zaxby's and say, I'm not hungry enough for that big Zach snack today. Give me the kid's meal. You know, we, 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 we decide, you know, we want things the way we want them. And if we want a smaller size portion, that's up to us. And that's fine at the restaurant. A lot of us could use smaller size portions. That's not a bad thing, okay? But Jesus said, you don't take some junior version of me. You don't go light. You don't get a half order. You're either in or out. That is what he, I'm calling you to do. It's not that Jesus is threatening that he's going to throw you out of his family. But he's saying, does salt make any does salt do anything if it's not salty? Would you just sit there and, and take your plate out and let me just pour some little white granular things on my food? You know, this kind of looks like uh, sand at the beach. I like the beach. Let me just pour some in just because let me give me a little extra crunch in there. No, none of us would do that. If our salt lost its flavor, 
if it was salt-like, if it was mild, and if it's just like taking a little bit, if it was halfway, we wouldn't want it. What good is salt that does not flavor food? Jesus said a very similar thing in the book of Revelation. That church of Laodicea said, You are neither hot nor cold, and I will spew you out. God says, I have no place. I'd rather you be full-on lost and admit you're lost and admit you're not following me or really, really, truly following me. But for you to say, hey, I am just, I'm a Christian, but I'm, you know, on my own terms. I got a special deal with God. God says, that kind of stuff sickens me. And why does it? Because Jesus didn't go halfway to the cross for you. He went all the way. He didn't suffer for some of your sins and mine. He suffered and bled and died for the sins of every single person, past, present, and future. He took all of our punishment and our blame on the cross. He is not halfway our Father God. He is all the way. And he calls us to be all the way with him. Now I want to I want you to understand the context for these words of Jesus. Because we need to take them very seriously. We need to say, we need to understand that following Jesus is not a part-time gig. It's not a hobby. It is something that is to be above and all through everything in our life, our work, our family, our play. Following Jesus is a part of all of it. But there is a potential problem here that, some, that a sensitive soul can look at this teaching and say, Oh no, am I really a Christian because I don't do this and I don't do that? This is not a test for if you are really a Christian. Jesus said, those who believe in me shall have everlasting life. The point is, once we become believers... Now we understand that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And so now because we love him and because we understand he is our creator, he is our Savior, he has the right to tell us how to live. We want to live the way he has called us to. And this is telling us the information that we need. Here's the way we live. So this is not to get all worried and say, am I really saved? Now we all do need to ask ourselves that question. Do I really believe in Jesus? But we don't need to ask ourselves, am I really a Christian because I don't know if I do this and this and this and this and this. No. What we need to really ask ourselves when we know we're a Christian is, am I living the life of a disciple? Am I being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? Have I understood that I cannot come to him and keep some things in reserve and cherish some sins in some little compartmentalized part of my life and then but be okay because I do a lot of other good? Because I outweigh and do more good than bad? Am I all right as a disciple? Jesus is helping us to understand that a disciple or a follower, I use those words interchangeably, that a disciple of Christ is someone who if you're being that, if you're doing that, it means everything else is out the window in terms of priority. doesn't mean we go and sit on top of a mountain like a monk 
We still go to work. We play ball. We pay taxes. We do all of our normal stuff in life, but we do it in a way that honors Jesus. You know who he was really fussing at? Was not all the, the folks who had done bad stuff and messed up. In fact, the passage before and after this is talking about people who think they've got it already made. He's talking about people who are comfortable and they think, I'm good, I'm religious, I'm moral, and they are self-satisfied and they don't want to do anymore or be anymore. And Jesus is talking about, hey, I'm looking for the people who understand that they're not enough on their own. I'm looking for the folks that I can compel to come in, to go out into the highways and byways, the Bible says, the ones who know they need me. And they can understand that all that I really have in life that's really, really important, it's not my career, it's not my money, it's not my stuff, it's not even my family, it's not even myself. The thing in life that I should cherish most is my Lord, Jesus Christ. And if I'm going to call myself a disciple, if I'm going to aspire to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ, the math says, add it up, it's everything. I'm all in. That's what being a disciple of Jesus Christ is about. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we come to you and we understand that none of us are perfect. We all fail, we all falter, we all goof, we all make mistakes, and we all make intentional wrong choices. And Father, we deserve nothing but condemnation. And yet, you choose, by your gracious nature, to forgive us and to restore us in grace. And in fact, you choose to give us the power and the strength and the judgment through your spirit that we have discernment that we can make the right choices. And so you empower us to do right, and you restore us when we don't. Father, what you want us to understand, though, is that it's all about you. And I pray that we would today understand, God, you haven't called any of us to Christianity light, to Christianity junior, to halfway mediocre religion. But God, you have called us to a complete dedication to follow you in every area. God, help us to respond to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.